Go to Jeremiah 29. Tonight is the end of a series that we've been in on uh, dealing with discontentment in life. And uh, if if it's your first night here, I don't think you'll kind of feel lost or anything. I think that some of the points from tonight will actually fill you in a little bit. Um, We've defined discontentment in this way because it can mean a lot of things. The kind of discontentment I'm talking about is when you're disappointed with um, how your life has turned out in a certain area and that disappointment or whatever begins to affect you in unhealthy ways. Um, that's the kind of discontentment that we've been kind of going after. Um, it's fine to feel you know, man I kind of thought by this point in life I would Things will look like this in relationships and finances and work and just all these different things. It's fine to feel to you know feel that way, um, but it's how that feeling affects you that can sometimes be really bad. Um, there are lots of people who battle depression because because that is affecting them in unhealthy ways. And uh, so we've entitled this small group that we did last summer "Wrestling with Contentment" because we really feel like it's something that you you've got to take the bull by the horns on it. Because if you don't, um, it will, that discontentment um, will lead to depression, bitterness, anger, just just a general whatever. Um, whatever you want to call the opposite of the abundant life that Jesus came to, uh, that he died for us to have, that's kind of where it'll end up. So I'm going to make the assumption that um, if if, you are, if there's something in your life that you're disappointed in how it's turned out and it's affecting you in an unhealthy way that you want to wrestle that into a healthy place, um, I'm going to make that assumption. And kind of what I've said every week is that this might be a series for you. This might be a series to help equip you to help someone else walk through it. I don't, I don't really know. Um, we spent the, the first night, uh, we looked at just the, the Israelites and just some things about their journey from, from slavery to the promised land that um, it's a giant group of discontent people, and we looked at some things we can learn from them. Last week, we talked about the things that we don't want to talk about uh, that kind of factor into it. Tonight is going to be um, incredibly practical. I, I want to just kind of throw out there five things um, to ask, to consider, to pray as you wrestle this through. You will not wrestle your way from, from being discontent to being content uh, without the involvement of Jesus, it will not happen. Um, you can you can try, uh, you know, medications, and you can try all kinds of therapy. But if any of those things are, and they ha- they have their place, but if Jesus is not a part of that for the believer, um, it's it's not going to be effective. Um, and so uh, these are, are some things for you to literally sit down in your time of prayer and to ask the Lord. These are things for you to think about with, the, with the, your brain that God gave you. Um, these are things what, when you sit down and you involve other people in your journey um, for you to say, hey, I'm not, I've been praying about this. And I'm not sure 
um, I'm trying to ask myself and ask God this. What do, what do you see maybe from your perspective? Maybe God will use that other person. Uh, so these are, here are our five, five things. They're all questions. So if you're a bullet point person, there's five of them. So you can structure your page uh, accordingly. Uh, here's, here's the first one. Um, how does this fit into God's mission? How does this fit into God's mission? We looked at this uh, in the first couple weeks in Jeremiah 29, uh, starting verse 4. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to their dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. All right, here we go. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. So we like that last verse. We don't like the ones that precede it. A lot of times, you know, that verse is cross-stitched on a pillow or on a bookmark. You give that to people when they graduate. In context, not the easiest verse to receive. To a high school graduate, God has plans for you. To people who've been taken from their home city where they found all their identity and they've been marched into this other place and for God to come and say, hey, I'm not coming back for 70 years. So you need to build you some houses and plant some gardens and have some kids and have some more kids and pray for this city's welfare because I'm coming back, but it's going to be 70 years and that means probably a lot of you aren't going to be around. So I need there to be some people to come back to and a culture that has continued for me to bring back here. That's a tough verse. It's great truth, but in the context, it's tough to hear. That's a true verse being spoken to people who are completely discontent with what's happened to them. These people grew up in Jerusalem. They were the people of God. This was their city, and now someone else has come in and said, no, it's my city, and you have to go live over here. They were certainly disappointed with the way their lives had turned out, and they were grumbling, and they were unhappy about it. Now, when God comes in and, and he speaks to him and says, build, have kids, get married, don't decrease, pray for the city, he's offering them a perspective. He's saying, you need to do these things because guess what? There's something bigger going on here. There's something bigger than you going on in the world. That's God's mission. We can define his mission in a, in a different ways depending on how you want to look at it and you can look at all kinds of verses that talk about different things but I would would say that God's ultimate mission is for everybody to know him and to know his awesomeness and his amazing grace and for everyone to know him and everyone to receive that love and to love him back to be in relationship with him that happens through um, your individual transformation being crossed from death to life 
So you have all these people, like all of us, who individually, God crosses you from death to life and then begins to transform your life to look like his. You press all those people into a bunch of little churches. You press all the little churches into one big giant church. And so the entire world is to be impacted through this transformed life. So people look at that life and they say, what's going on here? And God says, me, I'm going on here. That's God's mission. So how does this season of life or this area of your life, this area of discontent, how does it fit into God's mission, into your personal transformation and our corporate transformation for global purposes for his glory? How does that fit into it? And you might be thinking, okay, that makes no sense. See, in their, in their situation, he wanted them to populate and grow. So in 70 years, when he comes back, there's somebody left. There's still a Jewish culture that's been preserved and they know how to plant, they know how to build, they know how to get married, they know how to have families, and they, they realize that wherever, whatever city they're in, that's where God's people are. And so when he brings them back, there's someone to bring back. See, there's this big picture going on. So in our situations, how does, how does that work? Um, I'll use my own personal example. Um, I'm not married, which means that um, when, my, when I talked to my brother on last Sunday... And he said, hey, I think our, our whole house is flooded. Um, I had to get my dog taken care of and make sure the community group material was written. And a few church things to take care of, had an elder meeting to give them kind of what they needed to do. I didn't have to think what, what's going to happen with my wife and my kids and what about this and this and can I be gone this long and and is, is the church going to be okay? I didn't have all those things to do. As a single guy, I can get up and go when I need to. Now, am I saying that wives and kids are burdens? No. And if I get married one day, they will not be a burden to me, and you don't have to like, listen to this podcast for you marry that boy or whatever. Uh, <laughs> that's not what I'm saying. But from a big-picture standpoint, I'm able, to, I'm able to just go. I got a call one time in the middle of the night. I said, hey, somebody's missing. We need to go find them. I just got up and went. It was, it was, I was between dogs. I just got up and went. Didn't have to worry about a dog. Is that weird? That's weird. When it comes to big picture stuff as a pastor... I'm able to respond quickly. Now, you might think that's just me trying to find the bright spot in being singleness, but for me, that's a reminder that there's a bigger picture going on. This, this summer in uh, our community group, when we were talking about this and just had a lot of just questions about things, um, there were some, some people in the group who were teachers. And they said something that I could, I could relate to because I taught high school for two years. Um, if you're a teacher, there are probably times when you hate your job. There are a lot of people out there who hate their, their jobs, but one thing for a teacher who's a Christian, um, God just, he has this way of just bringing this truth back in front of you when you realize that you have all these kids who come from all different kinds of backgrounds, and all different kinds of care, and all different kinds of experiences with Christ, and you're one of the most consistent people in their life, standing up in front of them, knowing their names, responding to their needs, showing that you care, showing that you care if they learn whatever. When I was a teacher, when I was teaching high school, my, uh, 
I was like the, the assistant band director, right? My schedule was like uh, strings, bad. I don't play the string. I mean, I sort of play that one, but not like a violin strings. Strings class, like the second band, uh, the second jazz band, a beginner, beginner piano class. So I was, I had the scrubs basically. I had student taught at East Ascension High School, which had like just a phenomenal high school band program. Um, I'd come from LSU, so I had just been surrounded by like really good stuff. And here I am trying to teach a kid what an, an A is on the, on the staff, on the musical staff. The same kid every day. Couldn't remember that that, that one Second space, A, first letter, every day. And it got to a point, I was like, you, you've got to be kidding me. God, you put, this is the job you have for me. <laughs> I'm teaching the second jazz band, which, um, like, Brady and Brandon were in it. <laughs> which is why they are probably the only two that laughed at the scrub joke. Um, <laughs> But I mean, I'm talking like, I just, I didn't know what to do. And I would leave it in the, the day being like, is this, is this, this is my life? I'm being paid to do this. But there were these shifts that would happen. And I would be reminded of the fact that I was being paid to be a music educator and to teach them to love music and all this kind of stuff. But big picture, I was called to represent Jesus to them every day. There was something bigger going on. And so even though at times I was discontent, especially in that first semester of teaching, I was there for the people. And that was the perspective that pushed me forward. If I just hung out in the, in the perspective of, uh, you know, these kids can't play the violin and I don't know how to teach them, that's one thing. If my perspective, the big picture remains, uh, you're here for them, not for the skill, it's totally different. See, how does this fit into God's mission? Maybe you're at a job that you don't necessarily like so much, but you're there for the people. Maybe that's why he's put you there. So you can whine all you want and say, I hate my job, I hate my job, but God's maybe saying, yeah, but do you love the people? Because if you love the people, that's part of the mission. That's what's going on here. So asking ourselves, how does this fit into God's mission? How does this season of life, this area that's not turned out like I thought, how does it fit into what God's doing in my life and what God is doing around the world? That will change you. If you ask him and you open up to his response and you let him show you what's really going on in those things, I promise you. Because I'll never forget the day that we were about to go to this big competition. I had moved from being the second band director to being the only band director, and we are going to this thing the next day, and this girl walks in, and she said, my brother was just killed in a motorcycle accident. And so I had this decision of, I know that I need to talk to this girl, but we've got to go to this. I'm, my accountability is tomorrow. And so I went up to him. I said, hey, everybody in here knows some part of this music that you completely cannot play. Uh, 
Everybody practice that on their own. I'll be right back. And so I went off to the side, and I talked to this girl for a little bit. I just kept feeling like, you need, you need to pray for her. And I was like, oh, that's, that's weird, you know, and I don't know about that. And it, but it was like, no, no, not you. Like, y'all, you all, y'all need to pray for her. It's like, okay. I said, hey, would this be weird if we pray for you? She's like, no, that would be awesome. So we stopped what we were doing, and um, I was like, hey, you don't have to pray or whatever, but I'm going to pray, and if you want to pray for her, that would be cool. But everybody's just going to be quiet for a minute. We're going to do this. So we did that or whatever, went on, and somebody came up later and said, hey, are you going to get fired? <laughs> I was like, uh, 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 uh. <laughs> You've got to get fired, right? Bigger, bigger picture. It's tough because we have this natural leaning toward ourselves. But if we sincerely ask God, God, how does this fit into what you're doing in my life and on the earth? I really think his answer will, will change. It'll, it'll change the way that area affects you. Okay, second thing. Uh, what do I need to learn during this time? What in the world do I need to learn? We'll put this up on the screen. You don't have to turn to it. It's one of my favorite verses, and I talk about it all the time. It's in Exodus 13. And he was taking, them, taking the Israelites from slavery into the promised land. It's what it says. Uh, I stole this from John Ortberg. Uh, he's okay with it. Um, it says, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. Okay? He didn't go point A to point B, in other words. Um, For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Well, God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. The people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. It says, see, if I, if, if I go point A to point B, what lies along that path are the Philistines, and we're going to get into a war situation, and all these people who grew up as slaves and not warriors are going to freak out, and they're going to tuck tail and run. They're going to go back to Egypt. So basically, they're not ready for what, I, what they need to march through. They don't have what it takes. And I'm not talking about the, necessarily the physical skills. I'm talking about the trust in God. Their faith was not to that point yet where they trusted him enough to just march into what they would consider certain death. But in God's perspective, it was complete victory. So instead of going point A to point B, he brought them around this weird path, takes them out where there's no water, and he gives them water out of rocks. There's no food, and he provides manna on the ground, like we talked about, and, and quail. And uh, there's, they don't know where they're going, so he guides them with a, by a cloud uh, during the day and the pillar of fire at night. And when it stops, they stop. When it moves, they move. I mean, he, he takes them out where there's absolutely nothing. They have to rely on him for everything, and he meets every need that they have. Building up their trust, then to march them from point A to point B right through the Philistines, right, right where they, he was taking them. I mean, it literally says he brought them off to the side to teach them something, and then he's going to march them back through there because they were not ready for what was ahead. So that's the second question. What, what do I need to learn during this time? Maybe there's something ahead of, of your, your life. You look down the, the corridor of your life and you don't know what the next moment holds, but God does. Maybe there's something ahead of you that you aren't ready for yet. Maybe. I mean, maybe the, maybe the trust that you have in him is like it's good, but what is in front of you is going to require a whole lot of trust. Maybe you kind of trust him, but he's like, no, I'm gonna, I, I need you to trust me on this. Who knows what it is? Maybe, maybe it's patience. Maybe he's trying to teach you that. 
Maybe he's trying to teach you, um, like when we talked for, in community group a couple weeks ago about idolatry. Maybe he's trying to teach you that you're looking to people and all these other things um, for stuff that he's supposed to be providing for security and for direction and for comfort. So maybe he's trying to teach you about idolatry because what he has ahead of you, you cannot be idolatrous and walk through that. I talked earlier about how, the, how in, the, in the history of the ring, we start off and we just prayed, prayed, prayed because we had no idea what, what we were doing. Then we kind of got like, oh, yeah, we, we got it going on. We know what's going on. We were running almost 400 people on Sunday nights. We were, this was out at Parkview. I mean, we were, we were the only thing around. We kind of thought we were awesome. And like I said, the wheels came off. And God kind of pulled us off to the side, and he's like, hold on. You, you've lost a sense of dependence on me. We're gonna, you're going to need that because what I have for ahead of you is to become a church, and you are not going to just roll into becoming a church. You're going to have to trust me because things are going to be really hard when you do a church plant. You pull us off to the side, and we learn the hard way. And so it would make perfect sense to come before the Lord and say, okay, this, this area of discontentment is it's affecting me negatively, and I want to get through it. I just want to be teachable. If you're trying to teach me something, if you're trying to refine my character somehow, if, you're, if that's what this is about, then I want to humble myself. I want to, you are the potter, I'm the clay. And the pot doesn't look at the potter. Tell it what to do. What do I need to learn during this time? It's the second, second big question, practical question to ask. The next one. How do I need to handle this season? I'm not going to put the scriptures up, but in 2 Chronicles, Solomon finds himself... To, you know, king, and so God shows up and says, ask for anything, anything at all that you want. And so Solomon asked for wisdom. He said, I need wisdom because who can lead this people of yours? And God loves that answer right there. He says, you didn't ask for money. You didn't ask for possessions. You didn't even ask to live a long time. You didn't ask for, to conquer your enemies. You just asked for wisdom. It's a beautiful example for us. So how, do I, how do I need to handle this? He knew in that situation, as the king, he needed wisdom from God. Well, how, do you, how am I supposed to handle this? To ask God, literally ask him that. Because chances are he's not going to say, well, if you hate your job, you should probably just not put a whole lot into it and just kind of give up and show up late and do everything halfway, and you know, he's probably not going to say that to you. If your discontentment lies in the area of, of finances, he's probably not going to say, well, just be irresponsible with it and maybe just gamble a lot or try to play the lottery a good bit or you know, do something unethical at work to get some more. He's probably not going to say that. If your discontentment lies in your, in your marriage, it's probably not going to be like, well, just kind of just make lots of jokes about your wife at her expense to the guys and stuff like that and just kind of blame her for everything and you know, whatever. It's probably going to be a little bit different of an answer than that. Which means it would greatly behoove us to say, okay, how am I supposed to walk through this? If I'm discontent with being single, how, how am I supposed to walk through that? What do, you, what do you want from me as far as how I conduct myself? It's probably going to result in some, there being some action. You're discontent in your marriage. It's not God's not gonna say, "Well, you just don't need to do anything." He's probably gonna say, "Uh, okay." 
steps forward. Let's do this. Discontent in your job. He's not going to tell you to be lazy and not do anything. He's going to say, actually, you probably need to work a lot harder. And maybe that connects back to the first question about the mission. Maybe you need to like, do your work and do it well, but maybe you need to invest in the people that are there since that's the reason why you're there in the first place. If you're discontent with singleness, maybe you need to realize that like, being single does free up your schedule and free up time for other things. Maybe using, using those times wisely and stuff is the way that it goes. I mean, I, examples could go on and on and on, but how am I supposed to handle this? You can handle it well, or you can handle it like a jerk. You know those people who are like, who can't stand being single and so all they do is like make comments about it all the time? Like if someone's engaged, you'd be like, oh, congratulations. They're like, oh, another one. <laughs> another wedding, great. But, but that's true. A lot of times our discontentment, we, we, we act out like a kid. We say little things, we act little ways, we do little things like that. Very mature to bring our, ourselves before the Lord and say, okay, I know I'm discontent. How do you want me to handle myself? Solomon asked for wisdom. Maybe we ask for patience. Maybe we ask for whatever. Next one. Here's probably the least popular one of the night. Turn to Psalm 139. This one, you really have to want to know the answer to it before you ask it. All right, here's the question How am I the problem? How am I the problem? That's a nice way of saying, God, show me where the sin issue is. How am I the problem? The end of Psalm 139, verse 23 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. Okay, yours might say, Test me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You talk about a serious prayer right there. Search me, try me, see me, okay? Point out anything in me that you see is not, is not right and lead me in the way everlasting. Lead me through it. You, you show me what to do and I will do it. You show me where to step, I'm going to step there. Now, in what ways am I the problem? Could look like this. There are some people, like, I haven't picked on church yet. Let's pick on church. Some people who are just discontent with everything about church. This church, another church, whatever. Or maybe a community group. Let's pick on a community group for a second. People will say, oh, I'm just so unhappy in my group, and I don't ever go. And I mean, it's just kind of a drag, and I hate guy-girl night, and I, I only like hang-out nights because at least we get to eat, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. I just don't get anything out of it. It's one of my pet peeves about anything, okay, about anything church-related. I just don't get anything out of it. Well, maybe you're the problem. Maybe the problem is not your community group leader. Maybe it's not the discussion guide that they're reading from. Um, it's certainly not the scripture, and it's certainly not the spirit. Maybe it's you. Maybe the problem is that, um, like we talked about expectations last week, maybe you are expecting way, way, way too much. 
or maybe you're putting way, way, way too little into it. Because honestly, it should not be possible for a group of believers to sit around a room and open this up and us get nothing. If you get nothing out of that, it's because you're trying not to. It's because there's some sort of sin issue that is, that is blocking. I mean, there's something going on, but the, the problem is not, it's not here, and it's not the leader. The problem is somehow you. So the responsible thing to do is to say, okay, how am I the problem? God, what is my problem with community group? Search me, test me, see what's wrong with me, and lead me out of this. Or you can handle it where you're just like, well, I just don't like community group, and that's it. Another one, I like to pick on married people because I'm not married, and that makes it easier to pick on married people. Um, discontentment in marriage, sometimes, you take these guys who are like, yeah, marriage ain't quite what I thought it was going to be. And if you start asking questions, maybe you don't want to ask questions, but if you were to start asking questions, Let's say that maybe, maybe the issue comes down to intimacy. Like, yeah, 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 whatever. Not what I thought it was going to be, blah, blah, blah. Well, you can blame your spouse, or you can say, how am I the problem? And maybe God's going to look at you and say, you know what? You're the problem because you filled your mind with so many foul images and distorted views of what that intimacy is supposed to be about. And you just filled your mind. You have not guarded yourself at all. And so you have this completely, like, completely ridiculous um, expectation about what it's supposed to be about. And so you bring all that baggage into your marriage and you wonder why you're discontent. The problem is not with your spouse. The problem is with you. Now, we can fix that problem. If you'll just man up, uh, we can fix it. But guess what? You're the problem. I'm the solution, but the problem is with you. Now, do you want to fix it or not? See, that's, that's what I'm talking about with high mind the problem. And that's what I mean by you better really want to know the answer. Now, wives, some of y'all are like, mm-hmm, that's right. <laughs> Get that podcast downloaded. Now, wives, some of you are discontent with your husband because he's not a character out of a Jane Austen novel. <laughs> or because you've watched one too many Matthew McConaughey movies. And so the expectation is there that, that you are the princess and his entire job is to make your life happy and carefree and all this kind of stuff, when in reality, romantic, like whatever those movies are called, chick flicks, what's called that, have actually probably done more damage to marriages in the, in the church than we will ever realize. And so ladies, maybe, maybe you're the problem. I'm serious. Maybe you're the problem. Maybe you have brought that baggage into your marriage, and so you're expecting something of your husband that he, one, can't do, but two, is not even his job. He's supposed to represent Jesus to you. Jesus. That's why we have husbands' discipleship and wives' discipleship, and the point of both of those is supposed to be for all the husbands to sit around and be like, "How, God, what do I need to do to be the husband that you created me to be which comes after I'm the child of God that you created me to be. And the wives do the same thing. And from what I understand, in neither group is it, is, are they bashing the other ones and, and pointing the finger. 
How am I the problem? Let me do one more. I feel like that was weird. I'm not trying to start fights. Maybe you're discontent in your finances and you think it's like, man, if I just made more money, I could, I could buy Joe and Nicole a new house. I could, I could match the offering for Living Water International. I mean, I would give so much. I mean, I, I would just tithe. I, I would tithe on the tithe on the tithe. If only I made more money. When really, you come before God, you say, God, how am I the problem? Am I discontent with my finances? And he says, well, you're materialistic. You want more money so you can buy more stuff. And guess what? I'm not going to give you more money for you to buy more stuff because you don't need more stuff. You say, but I'm so thrifty. I mean, I shop at Ross's Dress for Less, and I only buy garage sale things and all stuff. And God says, no, 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 no. You have too many shoes. You have too many fishing rods. You have too many of all this, everything. You have too much, and I'm not going to keep giving you stuff because you're being a bad steward of it. You're the problem. I'm the solution. You're the problem. So, better want to know the answer before you ask it. And I know I've been pointing the finger and saying y'all a whole lot, but believe me, I'm in, I'm in the camp. I understand the difficulty behind saying, search me, try me, test me, lead me, let's do it. I understand because when he begins to speak, he requires obedience of us. It brings us to the, to the last one. Here it is. How can I be more like Jesus in this? This is really the question that just is like an umbrella over all the rest of them. How can I be like Jesus in this? Matthew 26, he's saying, um, I, he's in the garden, he's praying, and he says, I don't really want things to go down this way to be crucified, but it's not about what I want, it's about what you want. So how can I be Christ-like in this? I mean, it's interesting if you think about it because, like, Jesus was single. Jesus was homeless and poor. Jesus knew what comforts were like. Jesus constantly submitted to this bigger picture. So really, Jesus had so many of the circumstances surrounding discontent that we have, yet the dude walked through it without sinning. So the overarching question for us is, how can I be like Jesus in this? And he will tell you. That's what's awesome about a prayer life, is that you don't have to wonder. You can just ask him. And he will respond in his own way. And then you take a step, and then he says, good, now let's take this step. And he says, good, now let's take this step. Let's pray together. Father, um, we know that um, we know that you have this this plan for us. We know that we know that your plan is for good. It's not to harm us. We know that your plan is about your glory and. We benefit ultimately from that glory. Um, but honestly, Father, we all just have things in life where we're just kind of disappointed or unhappy with how things have turned up. It's just not how we thought it would be. 
But our desire, Father, is to walk through, whether it's a season or it's a lifetime, of these circumstances being this way, we want to walk through it in a way that is confident in who you are, confident in who we are because of you, knowing that your plan for us is so much bigger and better than anything we could ever dream of. We love you, Father, and we, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read this to us. We're going to sing just because that we sing. It is, it's their responses and their prayers, but I also feel like it has a way of just kind of sealing in maybe some of what God's been stirring. Um, because if we were to like say a prayer and take off out of here, it'd be easy for us to get distracted away from it a little bit. Um, this is talking about, about Jesus. Uh, we're going to put it up on the screen. This is 1 Peter chapter 2. And it's talking about his, his suffering and his submission to God's plan, that kind of thing. And so the context is a little bit different, but there's a principle here I want us to see. Verse 21, it says, For to this you've been called, okay, talking about his suffering and stuff, for to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Um, that in the Greek that terminology is talking about like you know like when kids are learning how to write and they have like like tracing paper and they lay it over the top and they they learn their letters that way or you have like the letters that are kind of broken up and they learn to trace that way that's how they learned to write back then too and so when it's talking about that example and following in his steps that's the that's the idea that's the terminology that's being used there like we lay our lives down literally on top of his and we try to trace his life perfectly. It says, verse 22, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Here it is. But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Continued entrusting himself. I think that that, that is such a huge key for us is as we walk through it we're just we're entrusting ourselves to this God who is over everything yet is intimately involved in our lives this God who is completely for us and loves us and has this beautiful plan this beautiful kingdom and and we fit into it that he does not waste a single thing nothing that you and I are going through is random um, it's all purposed and beautiful and it shapes us and he uses it and we have to just continually entrust ourselves to this beautiful God. Constantly I entrust myself to you. I don't understand this circumstance but I entrust myself. I'm bitter but I entrust myself. I was hurt but I entrust myself to you. You are you. Are you. And so I think as a response I think that's something that is needed for us to say, I, I am entrusting myself to you. I'm releasing this. I'm, I'm done with it. Let's wrestle through it. I'm done trying to control it. I'm done being bitter. I'm ready to just continually entrust myself to you because I know you. I know who you are. I know you're this beautiful God this beautiful plan, this beautiful kingdom. 
I'm ready to live that beautifully abundant life. And I just entrust myself. So we're going to, Sarah's going to sing this song. I would really just like it just to be sung over us because I think it's a beautiful prayer. Then we're going to do another song that's going to be our response and we'll stand in response. But if you would just let this just be sung over you and just sink in and let it just coincide with that entrusting surrender that goes on.